It's not always easy to find the positive. You might even need to search for happiness. Sometimes, just a little inspiration can make the difference. Here, it comes from unexpected places. Welcome to the Tangential Inspiration Podcast. Hi, I'm Teresa. And I'm Amy. We are two ordinary moms looking for inspiration wherever we can find it. So, hey, Teresa, what fun thing did you do um, last week? We had a little hiccup with our trip to Sun River, so it was nice because then yeah. we got to go to uh, that Gung Ho Ministries. That was so and fun. And that was a blast getting yeah. to pop Shop. some tags. Yeah. With, and all the money goes to veterans. That's so cool. So that was fun. Yeah. And then we, as a family, went and saw Sean Chi. Oh, okay. I want to see that. Um, so good. Yeah. Can't wait to go see it again. It's, yeah. It was fun to, obviously, everybody's wearing masks, thank goodness, and being smart, you go and you pick your seats ahead of time. So That's awesome. um, it was huge that my whole family came. So I felt like it was a little bit a step in the right direction with yeah. being normal again. Exactly. And it was a great movie. Oh, good. I think I everyone needs to go see it. Yeah. Very good Marvel movie. I'm just always inspired when young people are doing cool stuff. Yeah. There's a 13-year-old in... Oahu named Jenshu Price, and he's helping raise money for college scholarships. It started off, he's homeschooled, and he knew college was going to be expensive, so he decided he'd collect cans and bottles to raise money for college. And then he just started thinking of other people. So industrious. I know. Yeah. And he's got like a bunch of YouTube videos. They're adorable. You need to just go watch because one of them has his neighbor who is a retired firefighter. And it's just adorable, the the conversation between the two of them. But he talks about his four pillars of belief. They include education, um, empowering children and supporting their future while also encouraging in the present and giving opportunities. This kid's 13 well, I'm, I'm like, know. I'm just sitting there thinking um, about this. Environment, raising awareness to reduce, reuse, and recycle. Another pillar, community, taking care of our neighbors and bringing the community together for greater cause. Oh, so know. in his videos, he, like I said, he includes his neighbor. And he just tries to encourage people to meet up and bring their cans. Oh, that's awesome. And then finally, his fourth pillar, lifestyle, raising awareness for conscious choices, especially for the future generations, and just trying to get people involved. Yeah. So his goal, he wants to... Um, collect 2.4 million recyclable cans and bottles wow. annually. Wow, that's a big goal. That's Huge, especially kids. since, yeah. you know, he's on Oahu. Yeah. And so, but he's done the math and he knows he can do it. And that will provide one to two Hawaiian students a uh, college scholarship. Oh, cool. That is so admirable. So it's um, Bottles it. for College oh. is his uh, hashtag. And he's got, like I said, several YouTube videos. Definitely need to check him out. And then there's another young man named Ryan Jean. And his tagline and website is Race to Kindness. Oh, another kindness. So I know. We've kind of got the... Yeah. He had won... In 2020, he did a speech contest. And part of it, he said, it's all about my moral duty to help people. When you watch the speech, he yeah. does not sound like a 10-year-old. He oh. sounds like, you know, 45-year-old, very wise right. young man in this in this yeah. body. Must but. be an old soul, they say. <laughs> Definitely. But with the $500 prize money... The Orangian one, he donated toys to the Dallas Children's Hospital. Oh, cool. Wow. So, next, he did food drives and he partnered with some relief groups and he helped collect 100,000 meals for Texas families. 
Wow. I know. That's awesome. So he now is trying to collect, his goal is to collect 500,000 books to donate to kids that wouldn't otherwise have books. Aww. So I just, I, without a goal, yeah. you, you have nothing what to really shoot heart. for. But yeah. I love that this kid's 10 and he's setting these lofty goals and he's hitting them. That's awesome. So very awesome. Now we talk on our podcast about inspiring stories and people. And I have to say, who I read about for this episode, Eddie Jaku, the happiest man on earth, the beautiful life of an Auschwitz survivor, would seem like an unlikely story of inspiration because of the horrific atrocities of the Holocaust. But on the contrary, his story is inspiring and his perspective on the world and humanity is so encouraging. His story is pretty incredible. And I was blown away by his ability to look for the good. No kidding. In the people watched a lot of videos that they're like, we lost faith in God, we lost faith in humanity. So it's, I'm excited to hear about Eddie. Yeah, so Eddie was born April 20th, 1920 in Leipzig, Germany. So he's over 101 years old, which is pretty impressive (laughs) in itself. But I just watched a YouTube video where he spoke at the TEDx talk Mm. in 2019 in Sydney, Australia. It's totally worth watching. He is so warm and full of life and so wise. I just, it's worth it. Everyone go watch. I have to say, I had to. Yeah. Did you see yes. it? Did I you had go to look go it up? after you talked. Yeah. I did have to go watch. And oh my gosh, I see why you love this man. Yeah. So, yes. Carry on. Well, so, you know, he talks about growing up in Leipzig, Germany, which he described as the most cultured, the most sophisticated, and certainly the most educated society in the world. Yeah, he talked about, you know, Very, like Mozart and yeah. all of these. The history yeah, yeah. of this of this Area. particular yeah. uh, city. And he would soon find out how wrong he was. Eddie described himself as German first, German second, and then Jewish. His religion didn't seem as important as being a good citizen. He had a loving family, his parents and his sister, Henny. They would spend every Friday night at their grandmother's house for Sabbath dinner, uh, which I think is just so... I love that picture. But anyways, Eddie's father worked hard for the family and provided a comfortable life. Uh, As a child, he would bake challah bread with his mother, and they always made extra to take to local synagogue for those in need. He described at this time a cloud that kind of hung over his happy family. Germany was in trouble. Like a happy cloud or just like a a protection? Like a a heavy cloud because Germany was in trouble since they lost the last war Mm. and the economy was in dire straits. And even though they were a middle-class family, Eddie's mother would walk kilometers to a market to sell her handbags and clothes mm. for, you know, eggs, milk, butter, and bread. We don't even comprehend that I know. in this day and age. And then at 13, Eddie was told he could no longer attend the school he'd been going to because he was Jewish. Mm. His father had false papers prepared using a <laughs> using a Gentile, non-Jewish name, Walter desperate Schleff. Desperate times yeah. call for desperate measures. Yeah. So Eddie was sent away to an engineering boarding school. He couldn't visit his family and would have to sneak phone mm. calls to his father from a phone booth in a basement of a department store. And he talked about being worried about being followed. And his dad was sweet. I mean, he encouraged him on these phone calls to work hard in school and stay strong. Later, his sister would tell Eddie that Afterwards, when he put the phone down, he would cry like a baby after talking Aww. to him. I mean, he's 13 years old. I can't imagine sending my kid away like no. that. It's got to be hard. 
Eddie excelled in school and graduated top of his class. After graduation, he wanted to surprise his family and return home. He was heartbroken to be away from them for five years and not have them there to celebrate in his achievement. And I have to say, throughout this book, there is like these, it's usually the end of the chapter, these awesome little nuggets. But at this point, he's right talking about his graduation. But then he writes, family first, family second, family at the last. I just... I love how he writes about this, the hardships, but along with what matters most, and in this case, is family. Family. It, it just yeah. warms my heart what, what he's going through, and then he can still see what's important. See what's important. So after graduation, he came home in the middle of the night. No one was home except their family dog, Lulu. It's a little dachshund. So cute. I, and he went to bed in his childhood room and thought he would figure everything out in the morning. He heard noises outside, unaware of what's going on. He really didn't know what was happening because he was away at school. But he woke to 10 Nazis busting down their front door. And they beat him to death almost and shot their dog, Lulu. I heard the dog was trying to protect him. Protect him. him. Yeah. Which just... I know. I know. It just makes me sad. They burned down his family home. It's over 200 years old. And that night is now known as Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass, named for the shattered shards that littered the streets after the Nazis destroyed Jewish-owned stores, homes, and synagogues. This was just the beginning of the horrific events to come. He writes, you know, because he can look back and he's like, if people would just have stood up at the time and yeah. questioned, what are you doing? You know, things might have been different. Well, and even now we look back and like, how 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 did no one stand up to right. that? How this is just I it's unimaginable, yeah. really. So Eddie was so close to death after the Nazis beat him up. They had to send him to a hospital before they could yeah. send him on to. And so a, he's like eighteen at this point. He's right? eighteen. Okay. Yeah. And he was so worried about his family and wondered what had happened to them. Mm. Now, after he healed, he was sent to Buchenwald, which is the largest concentration camp in Germany. And that's where he met his best friend, Kurt Hirschfeld. So he met him or? He met him. Yeah, that's where he met this okay. friend. And, and throughout his story, he'll be at different concentration camps and they'll mm. find each other. So it's kind of a kind of a neat neat thing. But... The living conditions were harsh. He slept with five others to a bunk. There was just a lot of sickness and starvation. Eddie saw a familiar face shortly after arriving at Buchenwald. It was a classmate, Helmut, um, from the engineering school. So he's a Nazi soldier. And Helmut was shocked that Eddie was Jewish, and he wanted to help him. Eddie saw... See, that says something right there. Yeah. Because he knew he was a person. He knew they were friends, and... He saw him as a person, not right. you're a Jew, right. not the, the well, labels. And Eddie, you know, writes that um, he did see, you know, human decency in Helmut because he actually helped Eddie get a position as a toolmaker. In the concentration camp? Well, they, not in the concentration camp. Okay. okay at the time, he was going to be sent away to another factory as a toolmaker. Mm. For, so Eddie had to sign papers that said that the camp treated him well. And that was a good deal, and that he would agree to work at this factory for the rest for of the his, Germans for the rest of his life. Mm. Part of this agreement, he was arranged that his father would pick him up from the concentration camp and visit for a few hours, and then take him to the factory. Eddie talks in the book about how that feeling he felt when his dad picked him up 
the feeling of freedom and the end of you know persecution, he would reflect on that during the following years as a way to remind himself he could survive one more day, an hour, a minute, then the pain would end and tomorrow would come. So instead of his dad taking Eddie to the factory, he arranged for a smuggler to help them cross mm. into Belgium. The plan was for Eddie and his father to set up in Brussels, Belgium, and then send for his sister and mother. Unfortunately, by the time his mother and sister arrived in Brussels, he was gone. He ended up being free for just two weeks and then was arrested by the Belgian police for being German, who crossed the border illegally. Uh, He was able to negotiate with the Belgian government that he was not part of the Nazi party and that he spoke French and that he'd be willing to teach mechanical engineering at the university. So he would leave prison each day to teach and return at the end of the day. While in prison, he reconnected with his friend Kurt, who was also a prisoner. And that I think that's the, that kind of kept him going. Mm-hmm. They spent nights together talking, and that lasted one, roughly one year. Then Germany invaded Belgium, and then it was unsafe for those refugees to stay. And they were kind of... They were kind of set to go, and he ended up walking with a group to uh, Dunkirk, hoping to gain passage to Britain. They arrived during the legendary evacuation of Dunkirk. You know, I still they, haven't seen them. Well, it's where the Allied military yeah. resistance um, was destroyed, and they were trying to get mm-hmm. the troops off the beach while the Germans were bombing these trapped troops. Eddie and thousands of refugees walked all the way to the south of France, which took two and a half months. He talked about how he experienced so much kindness with strangers. The French villagers, in particular, he would sleep in their doorways, uh, waking up early to avoid the Nazis, you know, going in the dark. In the early morning, he'd start his day walking, and these villagers would offer him food. And they were poor and didn't Mm -hmm. have much either, so that just meant even more to Eddie. His luck, unfortunately, ran out, and he got arrested um, as a German, not a Jew, and then he was sent to a concentration to Camp Gers, where his it's it's really amazing that his father, you know, had had the foresight to put him in that engineering yeah. school because that's really what saved him. They summoned him for his engineering expertise, and he writes that how Hitler is obsessed with Jews that escaped Europe. Many were really highly educated mm-hmm. professionals, doctors, scientists. And Hitler wanted them back to be part of the science <laughs> advancement and war mm-hmm. effort. So There's it, a reason they left. <laughs> I just this it's just baffling to me. But so Eddie was sent to Auschwitz in Poland, and he he at that point he didn't really know how horrible or what that was, mm-hmm. but he knew he wanted to escape. So he planned to escape by obtaining a small toolkit that apparently every train station had that every engineer would need these toolkits. So mm-hmm. he kind of grabbed one from mm-hmm. the train station. And as soon as the train left the station, he went to work on some floorboards. Uh, he removed two, just enough space to squeeze through along with nine others that he helped escape. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, just before they were enter, you know, before they were leaving the border, they, they hung on underneath the train long enough to drop onto the tracks. Talk about desperation. Yeah. I mean, it's your moving yeah. train. So he, Headed back to Brussels, you know, try to find his family, you know, hiding on trains. He made his way back. His parents weren't at their apartment. So Eddie reached out to a family friend who said that they were hiding in an attic of a very old, kind Catholic man who was clueless. <laughs> he did not even realize the state of the world, apparently, Aww. and didn't know it was illegal to harbor Jews. Thank goodness he didn't. I know. Yeah. His family was 
had two, you know, cramped rooms. They tried to make it nice. They found furniture and tried to, you know, make it bright. Dangerous for them to be outside. They were afraid of getting turned in to the Nazis. So Eddie's father made a false room at the entrance to one of the rooms. He put planks by one of the windows so they could escape if the police came. I wonder uh, what that looked like. I, I'm I mean, trying to said, visualize yeah, it. Like, it's it, it, kind of it, hard to, to see. And so Eddie worked at night at this factory for 10 cartons of cigarettes. That's how he paid. And he found a kind woman who agreed to sell them in exchange for food. And then just a Jewish family in a building next door, one night the parents were taken. So Eddie's family took in these three young children. And then unfortunately, one night in 1943, his whole family got arrested while he was at work. Mm. And the young children were safe and not taken. The the dad put them in that little space. Um, so it must have the been. The false room. Big enough. Been, big yeah. enough that they could fit these and two little like three little kids good enough that they wouldn't know that it was a false front yeah right, so right. it must have had some good engineering there from his dad too so the family was put in a transit camp until the nazis and this part was really hard to read the maximum capacity to fill a train in auschwitz the nazis were as he puts it scary efficient each train carried 1,500 people, so 10 carriages and 150 people per carriage. Oh, my gosh. As they boarded the train to Auschwitz, Eddie saw Kurt again, his Aww. friend. I mean, I really feel like that's his little like light. Like yeah. You just... know, something to, you know, some hope. But the train ride took nine days and eight nights, no food and very little water. Each carriage had one 44-gallon vessel of water for 150 people which was going to last the journey that for nine days well and i did, eddie's dad was just so had so much ingenuity mm-hmm. he took out a swiss army knife and cut a piece of paper some sort of paper or some document he had in his pocket and cut it into 150 little teeny pieces that people could roll up and make these kind of like paper cups Aww. and it's sad but i mean after that horrendous train ride i mean as many as 40 percent died Mm. That doesn't um, doesn't yeah. surprise me. I mean, we I mean, you can go without food, but you can't go without water. Yeah. And the conditions, That's a long time. yeah. And they were, you know, Eddie talks about after getting off the train, they're all weak and tired, and then they were separated by men and women. The strong sent to Auschwitz for slave labor, literally to work themselves to work them to death, mm-hmm. and the weak ones were immediately sent to gas chambers. His parents were sent to gas chambers, and he didn't even have a chance. To say goodbye. And again, this is another point where he's going to interject. And he says, if you have an opportunity today, please go home and tell your mother how much you love her. He goes on to say, do this for your mother and do this for your new friend, Eddie, who cannot tell (laughs) his mother. And I just, yeah, I love how he refers to the reader as a new friend. I'm truly honored to be his friend. Well, and every mom, every mom will love that yeah. right there because every every mom wants their son right. or daughter to yeah call and- yeah. And one in the in the book later, he talks that he he, he had done that speech on on to a to a school, mm-hmm. and a girl went home who seventeen years old doesn't talk to her parents, doesn't talk to her mom, gave her mom a hug and said, "I love you." Mm. She called him. She called Eddie th- that day and said, "My daughter came home from school. We don't talk." She said, I love you, and gave me a hug. His thing saying that if he can make one miserable person smile, then his days, you know, his whole life's a success. Yeah, I just love his perspective. So Auschwitz, 
it was hell on earth. Eddie described leaving his bed in the morning, not sure if he'd return at the end of the day. The prisoners slept on a wooden bunks, 10 men to a bunk, no so mat. So before it was five. So now well, it's 10. Well, he's at Auschwitz. It's well, a right, different camp. Right, but, yeah, but so, still. So yeah, so it's a different camp. But yeah, so Twice as many people on the bed. Yeah, no mattress, just, no blankets, oh. and they were forced to sleep naked. Naked because you couldn't escape if you're naked, right? You're not going to run out in the cold weather. Eddie would walk an hour and a half each way with a group under Nazi guard, their only protection was their uniform and these wooden shoes he describes that were so painful. Wooden shoes? They were like blocks of wood, and oh. they would kind of, he said he would kind of maneuver them different, to the straps differently so he mm. wouldn't get blisters in the same oh. places. I mean, they sound horrible. His first job at the camp was walking to a nearby village who supplied ammunition. He would pick up these bits of ammunition with his bare hands left over, you know, and it was super dangerous work. He cherished his time, though, in the morning and night with his best friend, Kurt. Kurt and Eddie never had work detailed together, but it, they had a really good friendship. Sometimes they would leave little presents for each other hidden behind, like, this toilet wall. Aww. Like little, like mm-hmm. some soap or little pieces of rags or toothpaste. I guess rags were huge because they helped prisoners. They could stuff their uniforms that keep them warm. But oh also, also to keep them clean. <sighs> he would use them to help clean themselves. And sometimes he used it as a sock for those wooden shoes. But Eddie stressed, without friendship, a human being is lost. I think that's what I loved about his TED Talk. Yeah. And I'm, I had watched another TED Talk on loneliness. Yeah. And that's, you know, one of the main, a, a huge area with depression, right. like friends and just having that connection with right. people. And even back to John McCain, he had people that he would do, you know, a little knocking on right. the on the wall with. And so they at least had that. Right. When you're in these dire, yes. dire and some situations. Hope. Just some hope. Yeah. So as he says, a friend is someone who reminds you to feel alive. Eddie talked about wanting to go to that barbed wire fence so he could be shot. But his friendship with Kurt stopped him. Eddie found out later his sister was actually at Auschwitz. And he, he could not approach her or hug her because if the Nazis knew they were related, they would use that against them. Mm. His sister worked cutting bullets for the German army. Excuse I wonder how they do that. I don't know. The work was very hot. And dangerous. Oh, like they were melting things? Yeah, they're or, melting. Oh, okay. And so she would stand in freezing water. So it, was the sister older or younger? Than younger. Him? Younger, younger okay. than him. And so she's maybe 15, 16. Right. He didn't, he didn't say her okay. age in the book. It broke his heart to see his sister, the skin and bones, just like him, but in this horrible conditions. Later, he helped her get medical attention for gangrene in her, mm. in her feet from a fellow prisoner who was a doctor. That just must have been so hard having a family so close by, and you can't be with mm-hmm. them. You can't. And seeing and the, seeing them. And knowing the, the conditions. Yeah. And, and not being able to help with that. And one, you know, one time he was talking about he'd been given a ration of bread, and he laid it with his soup on his bunk, and his he left his barracks, and then someone stole his food. He said someone um, said, that's expected. It's survival here in Auschwitz. Eddie disagreed, and he said he would not lose sight of what it was to be civilized. He would never hurt another prisoner. He never stole another man's bread. And he did all he could to help his fellow man. Good guy right there. I know. I mean, 
Uh, and he was he was at Auschwitz for two years. That's a long oh, time. A long so time. and he was in concentration camps from thirty eight to to forty five. So oh. seven years. And it's just I. It's I. It's hard I mean, to I get your head around in it. Traffic for twenty minutes. I just um. I I just can't even. Yeah. So on January 18, 1945, Eddie and the other prisoners were woken to a bell at 3 a.m. There was no work that day. They were put out on the road to march for Germany. At this point, the war was going badly for Germany, and the Nazis in charge of Auschwitz panicked, and they were told to evacuate the camp. This would be known as the Death March from Auschwitz. Over 15,000 Jews died on that march. You know, 6 million died uh, overall. overall. Some froze to death, some died from exhaustion. Eddie said it was the hardest time of his life, walking with no food, no water, and minus 20 Celsius, negative 4 Fahrenheit. They reached Gleswitz in southern Poland, and at this point, he was with his friend Kurt. He couldn't go any further, so he helped him find a manhole in a ceiling. He was surprised to find that there were three others hiding there. Eddie hugged his friend goodbye and covered the opening. And then Eddie continued with others, you know, finally reaching the train station um, where they're putting these open wagons, which I'm so it's like a train, but they're open. And uh, they just had their thin jackets, which mm-hmm. are useless. I and mean, snow fell and covered them. Eddie commented that it proved to him that there were still good people in the world and it gave him hope. Because uh, these Czechoslovakian, a lot of women would come by to the train as it went by and would toss some bread mm-hmm. as they went by. Mm-hmm. So at one point, though, Eddie ran from the group when he's, you know, off the train. They're, like, just trudging along. I mean, I think they're just endlessly walking. Yeah. And he saw that the coast was clear, and he hid in a pipe. And then as soon as he got into that pipe, he took a stone to rub off his um, the numbers that they branded on his arm. Ouch. And he talked about how happy he was to see, as he puts it, a beautiful American soldier's hope. Hope. They put a blanket around him and took him to a German hospital. Eddie was in horrible shape. He was sick with cholera and typhoid and weighed 61 pounds. Oh, my gosh. I mean, at that point, he made a promise to God that if he lived, he would walk away from German soil, never to come back to the land, dedicate the rest of his life, putting right to the hurt that had been done to the world by the Nazis, and that he would live every day to the fullest, which I just find that so remarkable. I mean... Which we all should do that without having to endure that, but at least we should learn from his story. So shortly after the war, Eddie reconnected with his friend Kurt and his sister Henny. They lived together in an apartment in Brussels for a while. That's so awesome. That's good. I know. It's pretty sweet. At one point, uh, they, they, some girls in the town, two little girls, tried to kill themselves and they were sent to a mental hospital mm-hmm. and Eddie and his sister and Kurt took them in to help them but it, that was a really common thing that happened after oh, the I'm, war I can't yeah but I just they wanted to help these girls whoever they could whoever yeah. they could but Eddie ran you know because of his engineering background he ran a factory and tried to build a new life uh, Kurt married and moved to Israel mm. and then Eddie met his wife Flora and they ended up moving to Australia. He had to get a sponsorship for um, after a sponsorship to a like a visa, visa type, type thing. Yeah. And so he chose between France and Australia because in uh, Belgium, he every six months he had to reapply. Mm-hmm. I think he's a little frustrated. Yeah, he didn't know if you were gonna. Yeah. So he and his wife had a wonderful life. Um, they had a gas station. They had a Renault 
He's a French car dealership. (laughs) And he was a really successful real estate firm. They had two sons and lots of grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Then in 1972, a group of 20 Holocaust survivors came together to talk about what happened to them. They decided the world needed to know. And the group grew over the years, and they finally became known as the Australian Association of Jewish Holocaust Survivors and then Descendants. They founded a museum, the Sydney Jewish Museum, which displays not only the history of the Holocaust, but the Jewish culture and the history in Australia. And Eddie has been speaking to groups for decades. He wants to share his story of hope, not pain. I love that. I know. Because I can't say that I'd be that gracious. Yeah. I. So I admire that. I agree. In May 2013, he was awarded the Order of Australian Medal for Jewish Community. And then in 2019, he was approached by TEDx, and they wanted to help Eddie spread his story. He spoke to 5,000 wow. people. He's, and now it's been seen over a quarter million people or more. I think I, I read that it... I yeah, I think... 13, I mean, like, 13, lang- like, 13 languages wow. it's been translated. Yeah. So, which, awesome. So, and I, I just... I so admire his perspective on humanity that he Absolutely. saw the good in people amidst the horrors, inhumane treatment he personally experienced and witnessed. I loved reading about his friendship with Kurt and Probably what part of what kept him alive. What, yeah, what, that's exactly right. What kept him alive, and how, just his ability to survive no matter what the conditions, and and in the end, thrive, thrive, I and mean, and write about it to help others. Yeah, I mean, I, I and that's I'm, what's so inspiring. Yeah, and I'm just so grateful that he shared his story with the world, so we never forget. Mm-hmm. And I just appreciate his words of wisdom on family and friendship, and the morality. You know, like when he talks about that he would never do wrong to a fellow prisoner, mm-hmm. and he would steal their bread. He would steal their <laughs> yeah. bread. I just find that so inspiring. I after you know you talked and I watched his TED talk. I loved that he said, "Hate is a disease. Yeah, it may destroy your enemy, right? But it destroys you in the process." And I just, I he's absolutely one hundred percent right. Where'd you find this? I mean, where'd you find the book? I, I mean, how'd you hear about it? I heard about it on the Today Show. <laughs> <laughs> they they interviewed him. Oh, okay. And I saw the interview with him, and I thought, he's, there's something yeah, to... He, no, I, I love I it. I find him very charming. He just, his personality, and... He just, he, when you watch the talk, you just want to go, like, get a hug and yeah. just and when he absorb stops, some of that energy. And he kind of laughs. Mm-hmm. I just, I just love his, yeah. that warmth about him. And so, it was on my list, like, yeah. I want to read his story, and... And that he can be happy and try to spread happiness with... You know, to smile and be polite and helpful and kind to other people when he has been treated so poorly. Right. I, I, yeah, definitely inspiring. May you always have lots of love to share, lots of good health to spare, and lots of good friends who care. Eddie Jaku. I heard this really neat story about a father and daughter duo, Randy and Amy. Olenek, pronouncing that right, who ride high wheel bikes. Yes, those oh. old fashioned looking oh my gosh, ones yes. with the big front Huge wheel. wheel. Yep, in the front, and then a little one in the back. The two okay. small wheels. Yep, they they still make those. They or do. They, made their own? Uh, they know they okay. do. Well, I don't know if they still make. I think they do because I've seen a website <gasps> that makes these, but theirs aren't new. 
They, but get this, they are 48 to 56 inches high. So yeah. that's like... Oh, my dead body. No. Okay. That's pretty far <laughs> no. off the ground. It's too tall for me. Yeah. So in 1991, Randy started riding a high wheel bicycle and was asked to join a group. Do you even get up there? I'm still, I'm still thinking about that. I don't but know. anyway, go yeah. Sorry. For this great American brass band festival that was happening in Danville, Kentucky. Soon after he began riding the high wheels... He joined this wheelman organization. Uh, this group restores and collects antique bicycles. And they're also, they, they ask their riders to dress up in historical <laughs> costumes, which sounds, I think, would be tough riding yeah. in this high bike yeah. and the outfit. And I'd just be worried about navigating, you know. But his sweet daughter, Amy, decided to join her dad. But she didn't want to wear a dress, so she opted for knickers. <laughs> <laughs> they have ridden over 6,100 miles together, which wow. I think is so impressive. Yeah. Their bikes are 132 years old, which is pretty and amazing. And knickers are a much better idea than a dress, dress on would a get bike. Yeah. yeah. So, 132-year-old bicycle? I know. Wow. I know. So they lost a family friend to colon cancer recently and decided to honor him by completing this crazy long journey together across the country. Starting in San Francisco, California, to Boston, Massachusetts. Aww. This is they rode three thousand three hundred and fourteen miles in fifty seven days. Wow, that's putting some rubber to those yeah. big high bikes. Man, uh, I wonder how many like flats and all of that they had along the way I, because you yeah, can't tell I me didn't, they didn't have. And they must have. Yeah. yeah, but Randy taped a picture of his friend Ray that passed away mm-hmm. on the back of his bike. And he said he was his garden angel all across the country and looked over us, which I think Aww. is so sweet. So just a fun fact, Amy was the first woman to ride across the country on a high wheel. <laughs> just, and it yeah, really, yeah, I can't imagine that. It really wasn't about that, but it was really about honoring a friend. But and the, she, so a man had done that before. A man has wheel. done that, okay. yeah. But so I guess they had so much fun, they decided to do another trip and do North to south so mm. salt saint marie michigan to florida okay yeah so they said people just smile i mean it's so out <laughs> of the ordinary you're not and, and they would yell <laughs> beep your they, beep your horns because yeah. they they're they're they, the little bike the bikes must have a different type of horn yeah. but it just seems to harken back to a different time yeah. things were simple i just enjoyed how they spent the time together. I guess they had some really deep conversations. Mm-hmm. I guess what you, what you got to do? You got to pass the time. But they also, you know, honored their friend. Amy said it was neat to have something in common with her dad and a nice bonding. Opera. How old is, how, how old is I, they didn't They didn't say how old she mm. was. But, yeah, she was younger. Like, okay. I mean, so she's, yeah. Very cool. Really cool. Story. Thought it was a fun, sweet, very sweet story. Yeah. yeah. So back in episode 28, you talked about Princess Diana and her legacy. And I loved that August 7th, Princess Charlotte had a photo showing her with a butterfly, which we can't escape the butterflies. (laughs) The butterfly is our theme. But it was hashtag butterfly count. And it was an initiative to um, see the health of the environment by counting butterflies. Oh, okay. So I just, I love the, yeah, because Prince Charles had also done the the spring break, you know. Right. Um, Go look for seashells. Yeah, and, and the, the nature. The nature challenge type of thing. And also, Prince Harry made a surprise appearance at the ISPS Handa 
Polo Cup. Okay. Which I guess at that um, event, he pledged $1.5 million to an AIDS charity, which, Aww. once again, yeah. his mom would be super proud of. Oh, for sure. For the future proceeds of his book. Oh, so that's I neat. thought that was awesome. And then also, so that was back to episode 28. With episode 10, we talked about Dolly Parton. Oh, yeah. She's in the news. Well, she's always in the news, but currently she's writing a novel with James Patterson called oh. Run, Rose, Run. It's due out in March. Wow. I'm sure it's fiction, so it's probably not going to be on my list to read, but still awesome. And apparently she's going to drop an album at the same time. Oh, wow. Good for her. That's industrious. I know. And then finally, um, episode 22, we talked about the crocodile hunter. And um, I was just going over these sweet pictures with Bindi Sue and their daughter, Grace, who was born on March 25th. Apparently, Grandma Terry is called, they call her Bunny. Oh, which that's I think a is cute. just the sweetest. That's her grandma name. That's the grandma. Yeah. yeah so instead cute. of calling her grandma, they call her Bunny, which I think oh, is perfect. I love that. But she said, "Every evening we take her out. They're talking Grace, the baby, um, and introduce her to all our wildlife family at the zoo. Oh, which sweet. I love. It's the perfect place to raise her." Bindi said, Grace loves adventures. Oh, cute. And she's such a happy, inquisitive little person. We can already tell she's definitely an Irwin. Oh. Which I love making Steve proud right there. So cute. So very sweet. We realize the importance of our voices only when we are silenced. Malala Yousafzai. Thanks for listening to Tangential Inspiration. We really want to hear from you. Email us your comments or story suggestions at tangentialinspiration at gmail.com or leave a comment on our website, tangentialinspiration.com. Our website has all our podcast episodes, show notes, stories, follow-ups, and links to websites and books we talk about. Like and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app, and you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Have a great week.